Hello, and welcome to our new special mini-series on climate sustainability and the path to net zero called Accelerating Transition. I'm Kara Mangone, Global Head of Climate Strategy here at Goldman Sachs. We built this podcast because we wanted to go past the headlines and announcements to report directly from the front lines of decarbonization. We're going to do that by talking to people both here at the firm, as well as outside the company to learn about innovation strategies and the hard thinking that's happening around the world to accelerate our transition to a sustainable future. For today's episode, I'm excited to be joined by my colleague, Michele Della Vigna, who is head of natural resources research for Goldman Sachs and EMEA. Michele leads our research on what he's called carbonomics, which I'm a big fan of, which examines the economics of getting to a net zero carbon world. He also just hosted our second annual carbonomics conference, which included representatives from the recent COP26 summit in Glasgow, as well as more than 40 CEOs driving decarbonization in power generation, mobility, agriculture, and industry. Michele, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Cara. It's my pleasure. And it's so exciting just one day after we've concluded the Carbonomics Conference. So we certainly have uh, a lot to talk about. It's incredible. What a whirlwind it must have been. I'd like to start by touching on your latest report in which you examined how capital markets engagement in sustainability is accelerating decarbonization. Can you talk through with us the role that investors are playing in the climate challenge today? Absolutely, Cara. And uh, I think this is absolutely key to drive the transition forward, but also to better understand what form it's likely to take. And the role of the capital markets was certainly something that almost everybody referred to across the conference. So let me me lay it out this way. Capital markets are deeply engaged in sustainability. Whichever unit you look at, almost all of the growth in asset management is in sustainability-linked funds. And also, when you look at how investors engage with corporates, we've seen a tremendous increase in uh, engagement on decarbonization and climate change issues. And just to give you a number, the support for climate change shareholder resolution across global corporates has tripled over the last decade. Now, what does that bring us to? I think it brings us on one side to extraordinary pressure from investors uh, towards corporates to embrace an energy transition that is at least consistent with staying well within two degrees of global warming or potentially aim to stay within one and a half degree. And what this is leading to is a complete change in the cost of capital of high carbon versus low carbon solutions. Let me give you an example. When I look at the energy world, 10 years ago, the cost of capital of an oil development or an offshore or wind power development um, were pretty much the same, somewhere between 8 and 12%. But since then, all of the engagement on climate change means that the cost of capital for oil development has now shot up to 20%, but for renewable power development is as low as 3 to 5%. And this 15 percentage point divergence in the cost of capital is an enormous driver to shift capital allocation away from high carbon towards low carbon development and has been, I believe, one of the key drivers of this historical moment when this year suddenly renewable power investment globally has become larger than upstream oil and gas. This is how deep the impact of capital markets is going in driving the energy transition transition and decarbonization on a global basis. And Michele, on that last point, 
we have seen an incredible reduction in the cost curve, which is really clear in your research around renewables. But we know there's still a pretty significant climate finance gap, and if you will. So, can you talk us through a little bit more? You know, where do you see the where do you see the cost curve shifting and flattening over time? And then, what are some of those other technologies where there needs to be a substantial reduction in the cost curve over time, where we're not there today, like we are in renewables? So, when we look at the cost curve, we've seen. Uh, It's a very substantial improvement last year. We've seen a good improvement this year as well, about 12% reduction in the average cost. Now, this year, to be fair, most of the reduction was driven not so much by technological innovation in clean tech, but rather by the higher cost of hydrocarbons, which therefore make a low carbon alternative more economic and more attractive. This is one of those instances where I would say, if carbon prices don't move, energy prices can move to obtain a similar effect in terms of pressure to the consumer to actually shift its consumption habits. And that's where I think if we look at the energy prices, for instance, in the last 12 months, if you look at their increase, per ton of CO2 that those hydrocarbons generate, we've seen an increase of $80 per ton, which has been very material and which has really driven that shift in the cost curve of decarbonization lower. While on the other side, if we were to look at global carbon markets, you know, the average, the global weighted average global carbon price is only $5 per ton, up from $2 per ton the previous year. So I think a lot of what the energy markets are achieving is also filling in a policy gap in terms of lack of global agreement and push for carbon prices. But let me come back more specifically, Cara, to your question on technologies needed to continue to flatten the cost curve. I think in some cases uh, for power generation is quite clear. It's renewable power and it's working quite well. There are still some problems of seasonality and intermittency, but it's working quite well. In mobility, I think part of it will be electrification, and that really will be linked to ongoing innovation on battery technology, which we think continues despite some inflation in the raw material costs. But then we get into the two or three technologies which are really challenging today, but which will be so important as we go into uh, net zero, which are clean hydrogen, especially for heavy transport and industry, carbon capture, especially for heavy industry, and the circular economy, both in terms of bioenergy, but also in terms of recycling, and more generally, perhaps also creating more of a circular economy on CO2 itself, where we capture it from the atmosphere, and with green hydrogen, it becomes, for instance, synthetic fuels, and then it goes back into a, a natural cycle. These are all areas that we think could make a tremendous difference in continuing to improve the cost curve for the future. Thanks, Michele. As you just mentioned, sustainable energy is not just about new green power companies, right? There's a lot of other sectors that also need to decarbonize. And at your carbonomics conference, you had several big oil and gas companies and CEOs there talking about those technologies that you just mentioned. But maybe more broadly, how are these companies, CEOs, thinking about reimagining themselves in a lower carbon business holistically? It's it's an important point because these companies clearly come from a business model that will not be sustainable in a net zero world. And so they are trying to 
lead the energy transition by thinking forward of how they can take some of their competitive advantages today in terms of capital, in terms of clients, in terms of technological know-how, and use that to build a sustainable business in net zero energy. They are, and they're doing it across all of these different technologies in renewable power and in electric mobility, mostly through the building of charging networks, but also in bioenergy, in carbon capture, in the circular economy, and in some cases of setting through um, nature-based uh, carbon removal, um, some of the ongoing emissions. And, and they're trying really to transform their entire business. And I think in some ways, they could be able in the next decade to capture both a material transition in their business model, while also harvesting their existing oil and gas business, which is shrinking, but which we believe can be very profitable in this first phase of the transition, where the restraint on supply and investment is creating a strong commodity price cycle. And Michele, transport is another industry where we're seeing significant technological change. Electrification continues to roll out across different sectors, which you talked about. But what are the key opportunities and challenges ahead for that industry? And aviation, of course, is an important, uh, is a very important one as well. So I think when we look into transport, um, we need to split transport into its different parts. I have little doubt that for light duty vehicles, electrification is the winning technology. But as we go into, into heavy duty vehicles, trucks on long hauls, shipping, airplanes, I believe we need a solution that gives you more energy intensity. And that's where hydrogen, including a, a potential transformation of hydrogen like methanol or like ammonia for shipping, and biofuel, specifically sustainable aviation fuel for aviation, and one day potentially e-fuels that come from merging captured CO2 from the atmosphere with green hydrogen will be the winning technologies to get transport to net zero. Um, I don't believe in, in one technology solution. I believe in an ecosystem of technologies where renewable power and batteries work together with hydrogen and carbon capture to get us to net zero, and where uh, local hubs, especially for industry, but also for heavy transport, need to be created to enable this full decarbonization. And Michele, maybe to take a step back here, the outcomes of COP26 were, of course, top of mind heading into your carbonomics conference. Part of this uh, podcast is really to dig in on some of the complexities around decarbonization and climate. Um, and this is very apparent in your research and the way that you think about different pathways. We know that national commitments to net zero and further cuts to carbon emissions by 2030 are absolutely critical in our progress towards low carbon economy. Um, but there's an important role for policy to play here. So can you talk to us a little bit about how policy impacts the different transition pathways to net zero? So. I personally think the, the Glasgow Climate um, Summit really did two things. On one side, it kept alive the ambition to stay within one and a half degrees. I'm not sure that we got anywhere close to promises to make it tangible, but it was kept alive. And where this is important is because I think it continues to enable investors and corporates to engage on 
the idea of one and a half degree, which clearly is a very ambitious one and one which will require substantial investments and technological innovation. In a similar way, when I look back to the Paris Agreement, I thought its key success was to bring this framework of Paris alignment for well within two degrees of global warming into the dialogue between corporates and investors with a clear reference point that was UN-backed. But in terms of politics, Paris Agreement, I mean, two years afterwards, the US left, the biggest country in the world. So it's, um, it's difficult to say that the Paris Agreement was a political success, but it certainly was immensely successful in creating a collaborative framework for decarbonization between corporates and capital markets. And I think Glasgow is having a similar positive impact with a shift towards one and a half degree, even though the country by country promises clear did not live up to that. And Michele, one of the other big themes coming out of COP26, which is also an important complexity in the global climate challenge, is around just transition. Um, you know, how will how are policymakers thinking through and private sector thinking through the implications of just transition in terms of meeting, you know, global climate goals? It's um, it's a complex area, and I'm not sure one where Glasgow has especially succeeded. Um, clearly, the Western world went into this summit on a deficit towards emerging countries because they had promised $100 billion per annum of financing by 2020 and didn't deliver. The best, I believe, was 80 in 2019. So, All that Glasgow effectively achieved was for that promise to be reiterated and that it will be met in the coming years. But it was not substantially upgraded the way that several emerging market countries were wishing for. Also, emerging market countries were asking for a bigger percentage of that to be dedicated to adaptation, which is the most urgent of their needs. Um, there's been a bit of a shift there with a view over time to go towards 50-50 of those funds being for mitigation and for adaptation. So I would say a bit of progress was achieved, but without doubt, a lot of emerging economies left the summit feeling that uh, the, you know, one of the core goals of uh, fairness was not achieved during this summit. And Michele, your remarks really underscore that one of the key complexities around decarbonization is is that it's a global problem, right, and requires a global solution, Um, but the world is not one place. How are regional differences playing out in the move towards decarbonization? I I think there are enormous um, local dynamics which can go in favor or against decarbonization. I also think each country has different competitive advantages in the renewable economy, for instance, in its industry, in its know-how. So I'm not surprised different countries will go different ways from a technological perspective, but it's important that everybody embraces a net zero um, goal in a way that actually goes through society, goes through investment and informs both the consumers and the corporates. I'm not sure this is yet happening at full speed in all continents, even in Europe, where 
without doubt, the, the policy is the most aligned on the, and the most detailed on the path to net zero and one and a half degrees. But even there, I don't think we're fully exploiting consumer pressure. For instance, if you go to a European supermarket today, you have the right to know the calorie and nutritional content of packaged food, but you don't have as a consumer the right to know the carbon footprint of that good. And yet, Today's technologies can enable us to do it. Between blockchain, internet of things, big data, computing capabilities, we can do it. But yet politicians aren't yet pushing corporates for that full disclosure. And I think this misses out on a key driver, which is consumer awareness and pressure towards lower carbon that I think will become one of the key tools of decarbonization in the coming years. It's such an important point. And you, you talked earlier in the conversation about the role that investors have been playing in the climate challenge and really accelerating engagement with companies on decarbonization. So much of that conversation and my experience um, at the firm working with clients on, on climate and decarbonization has been through a sectoral lens. Why don't you think there's that um, sort of regional lens that's being applied as much when we think about measuring and managing progress towards net zero? I think the difficulty is that a, a sectoral lens allows to discuss about positioning on the cost curve, technological maturity, all uh, factors that we can debate, but which are ultimately quite objective. I think when we go through a regional exercise and we start to attribute which regions get a bigger or a smaller budget of the limited budget to net zero, which for one and a half degree is only on our numbers about 500 gigatons from now, then we get into ethics and we get into what's right, what's fair, what's politically achievable. It is much more difficult to do that because the judgment is no longer driven by more objective economics and engineering problems and more by an issue of fairness, which is really important. But one where, for instance, in our carbonomics research, we've decided to focus more on, on technological maturity and positioning on the cost curve rather than just deciding um, how to distribute this budget across the world. Thanks, Michele. Two of the technologies that you've underscored in your research that are going to be crucial in delivering on global net zero goals are clean hydrogen and also carbon capture, storage, and sequestration. Can you talk us through um, where you see those technologies reshaping the cost of decarbonization and what is limiting you know, faster adoption um, of those technologies? I think... Um, three things are limiting faster adoption of those technologies. The first one is that those technologies need a completely new infrastructure. When you compare to wind or solar, you know, that was so much easier. The moment that you had the power generation that generated power from, sol from uh, the sun or from the wind, you then had an existing infrastructure to transport it and to use it. For hydrogen and carbon capture, you need a completely new infrastructure of transport, of storage. Um, in many cases, you need to create new consumption at the factory, at the building. It's a much more complex process, which requires a bigger infrastructure layout. The second thing I would say is one of these technologies, specifically carbon capture, is still suffering from, I think, 
some public resistance towards it, largely because it's viewed as a bit of an oil and gas field in reverse. You inject instead of extract, but ultimately what is different? And therefore, I think there is a bit of uneasiness in supporting this technology. I don't think it's right. I think we need the carbon capture and storage. And I think we understand enough geological storage that we can do it safely, especially if we do it offshore. And then the final point is uh, safety. I think there's still some concerns about hydrogen use um, on a global basis. There's concerns for its potential use in shipping, the potential use in heavy trucks. My understanding is that the safety can be well managed there and that it is not uh, materially more dangerous than an internal combustion engine. But that as well, I think, is what makes some of the public a little bit reluctant in supporting this solution. But our view is we need both if we want to get to net zero. And between hydrogen and carbon capture, it can probably make up to, you know, up to a quarter of the total decarbonization path. It's great perspective, Michele, and it's clear coming out of COP26 that, to your point, we really are going to need all the tools in the toolkit to deliver on global climate goals. Michele, thank you so much for joining us. Cara, it's always a pleasure. Thank you for your time. That's a wrap on our first special episode focused on climate transition. We'll be back next week with another look at this vital and fast-changing topic, featuring more experts from Goldman Sachs as well as its partners and clients. Until then, I'm Kara Mangone. Thanks for listening to Accelerating Transition. We'll talk to you next week.